Hello, Line Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Line Cook Thoughts Podcast. On this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Justin Kana. Justin has worked in some of the best restaurants in the world. He is also a very popular YouTube star and does a podcast called The Emulsion, and he just seems to have his hand in everything lately. And he's just a great voice for cooks and chefs alike out there. And I really think young cooks, experienced cooks, you all gain a lot of knowledge from this podcast because Justin has the experience of working in some of the best kitchens in the world, but he's also very humble. He's very grounded. And in that sense, he's able to give you an honest perspective and an honest viewpoint on the industry. A lot of you have been asking me since I started the page to interview Justin. I'm very grateful and honored to have had him on the show. And I'm very excited to see what you all think. So here we go. Hey, Justin, how's it going? Hey, Ray, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'm honored to, that you're having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure, and I love what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, so I guess, you know, a lot of people know who you are um, within the cooking world, but if they don't, if you just want to tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe how you got started. Totally. What you do right now, so. Yeah, so I'm based in Seattle currently. I grew up in Wisconsin originally, and uh, it was around... Right before I went to high school, it was that time when, you know, you're deciding what you want to go into as a career. I spent time as an athlete. I was a musician. I was kind of a nerdy math kid for a while. And um, nothing really spoke to me as far as, you know, this is what I want to do as a career. So when it came to be that time, I, I, got, a, I got a 4.0 my junior year because I thought I was going to go to Massachusetts and go to either Harvard or MIT. And there was just something about it where it was like, I, it didn't, it didn't really feel right. And Mm -hmm. food, food is, has always been kind of a part of my life, whether it's through traveling, uh, or, you know, just, just being able to see the pleasure that it brings people. I didn't grow up in a household where, um, people cooked. I grew up in a very, you know, pretty basic middle-class Midwestern household. But when I moved to New York, I went to uh, culinary school at CIA that was really when I started to kind of see the potential that food had. And that's kind of how I say that I grew up uh, in the industry. So culinary school there, then um, I did my externship at per se while I was there. And then I got my first job out of culinary school on the opening team of Grace, which was Curtis Duffy's restaurant in Chicago. Um, Spent almost a year there. And then the executive Sue from per se was going to be the chef de cuisine of the French Laundry. Okay. And so he was kind of revamping his team uh, in, in Yachtville. And so I sent him an email and he told me to fly out and, and stage. And I did. He offered me a job, which was amazing. And so I spent some mm-hmm. time at the French Laundry. Um, got a little frustrated with, you know, kind of the three Michelin star scene. Um, it's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of politics going on. Um, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of hours, a lot of thankless hours. And so mm-hmm. I decided that um, it would be time to kind of take a step back. And I, I, I honestly told myself at that point in time that it was going to be the end of, you know, fine dining restaurants for me. And something happened where my roommate moved to uh, Bergen, Norway, and he was looking for his first job at a wine school. And so then I told him I'd come visit him. I wanted to travel to Europe um, and <laughs> I wanted to kind of extend my stay. So that was at a restaurant called Lise Verkit, and okay. it was a guy who's half Norwegian, half American. Um, and then long story short, I stayed there for almost three years, became executive sous chef there. 
And um, that's really when the online content started for me because I started to think about, you know, like once the the, the natural progression after you, you, you know, you run a kitchen is to kind of start thinking about, you know, becoming executive chef somewhere, looking for investors for your own space. And I mean, well, I'm, I'm sure we'll get deeper into it uh, later here in the in the show, but um, that kind of became a part of my life. And now it's something that I'm really exploring now that I'm back here in the U.S. And like I said, I'm in Seattle. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, the places you've worked at, a lot of kids going, or a lot of young cooks going out of culinary school, you know, would dream of working at those places. Um, how did you, I mean, obviously you, you extern it per se, but how did you like keep getting into these places? I know you knew people, but I guess what's the advice you would give to a culinary student doing that? Yeah, I think it depends on where your ambition is at. I think that a lot of times these places seem like they're, they're far and out of reach. And that's what, you know, hopefully a, a lot of the stuff that I try to put out there is to not dispel that it's impossible, but to give people the confidence that, you know, listen, this, this really is something that, um, I went from, from zero, really rich, like truly zero. I, I didn't, I didn't grow up cooking. I didn't have, you know, tons of experience. I didn't have, uh, parents that pushed me into it. And in, in any regard, it was very self-motivated and it, it has to start from a, from a place of, of, of real humility, <laughs> like being, being willing to send like 85 emails and maybe getting a yes from one person, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but then also being very thoughtful of the fact that, uh, you know, you, you can provide value to any of these organizations just by, by being there and being observant and, you know, bringing good attitude to the, to the work environment. And then it goes from there, you know, like there, there's, there's no shortage of stories of people who were willing, were, were literally willing just to, to wash dishes for six weeks. And then all of a sudden, you know, they became the sous chef after, after X, X, X amount of time. So um, I think, I think if you look at it as like, I need to go uh, work on the line at this two-star place in San Francisco tomorrow, then it seems a little bit daunting. Mm-hmm. But if you can kind of put it in perspective of like, okay, this is going to be like, uh, you know, three to five year journey for me. And then I'm going to be at this place. Then you can really break it down. Um, and yeah, that's what, that's what a lot of the stuff that I'm putting out now seeks to do. Great. Do you think that, um, I guess that the culture of looking up to the Michelin guy could be harmful to young chefs? As far as, um, like... maybe in the sense, like, idolizing it. Like, for me, when I was in cooking school my first two years, all I wanted to do was work Michelin. Like, I I loved the restaurants. I loved the idea of just grinding and working hard. Um, but it was almost to the point where I kind of put the blinders on and, like, I didn't see any other opportunities in the food industry. Sure. Um, so do you think the way, like, do you think our culture and our industry is shifting away from that to where people can do media and stuff like that? Or do you still think Michelin holds a lot for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I was the same way, <laughs> you know, I, I told yeah. myself that I was going to go through this journey after my, after I graduated culinary school, I was going to mentor under either Grant Ackett's or Curtis Duffy, and then kind of continue that legacy of like Thomas Keller trained Grant Ackett's, Grant Ackett's trained Curtis Duffy, Curtis Duffy would train me. And then I would open this three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago. And I mean, I looked up to, you know, Fran and um, Pierre Gagnier and all, all these three Michelin star chefs who had the best restaurants in the world and I don't want to say that it was a bad thing because it sincerely brought a ton of you know motivation and and I talk about clarity quite a bit with 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 that journey of mine because I was just because you have the blinders on it's so easy to say no to other things where it's like you know you might get that inbox that, that email in your inbox where someone offers you x number of dollars per year to be the chef at their country club or whatever 
And if you have those blinders on, that provides so much, um, like there's focus there, you know, you don't have to worry about it's, it's, it's really easy to say no to all these other things when you're only focused on getting into these places and and learning. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, there, there's also no shortage of news lately of people wanting to either give back their Michelin stars or they're not even interested in getting reviewed by the Michelin guide because I think people start to see, especially in 2019 with people seeing things on the internet or on Netflix. And then you go to the restaurant, it, it creates so much false expectation sometimes. And so mm -hmm. to think about striving for this thing that may or may not disappoint people, that's totally the, the, the antithesis of why so many people get into to food is to make people happy. So yes. to think about, you know, well, you can get these three stars, but then people are going to come and they're only going to take photos of the food and they don't really care about who you are. They're just trying to check off, you know, this, they're, they're trying to check your restaurant's name off their list that they have. Um, I feel like it, it, it ends, it, the, the, the end point is kind of a, a hollow trophy kind of mm -hmm. thing at the end. So I don't necessarily think it's harmful. I, I, I think that with the, the flooding of new guides that sometimes are just either just as corrupt or even more lax as far as like how they rank restaurants, I think that Michelin still has some brand, but it's definitely being a, it's, it's such a huge undertaking when you think about what they're trying to do as far as like, yeah. we're trying to rank these restaurants that are completely subjective experiences sometimes in this kind of global guide um, that originally started as a marketing play. You know what I mean? So I don't think I, it's, it's to each their own. I think that if you, if you, and I have a video all about this, where if you're going for creating something that has an impact, the stars will maybe possibly even come with that kind of an mm -hmm. endeavor. But if you go into the whole thing exclusively looking for the stars, it's usually not the most fulfilling experience. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what I think the only thing that worries me because I have so much respect for, you know, chefs with Michelin stars and I think it's great to push yourself to that level. What worries me is, you know, my background coming kind of from a, a lower income family and, you know, a couple of my friends were like this in college. They want to get to the Michelin star status, but they want to do it so quick that they throw themselves into like a very, like a terrible financial situation. Totally. Where they're not happy and they're not even enjoying the food they're creating and, I well, think that's I mean, the only thing that worries me. Yeah, I mean, if you're willing to work for free for nine months for someone and you actually have the skills, I mean, there's a lot of people who can say that they worked in Michelin star places. I mean, there was – so when I, I – I briefly staged at Noma right after I got done at Per Se, and there was no – it was crazy how many people were there who literally just wanted to go back to India or Turkey and just say that they spent time at Noma because then they could get investors for a restaurant. Um mm. And, you know, they, they were literally like either sleeping on somebody's floor in someone's apartment in Copenhagen or, or what have you just to make that dream a reality. But, yeah, we could go on. We could go on for days about about that. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so I kind of want to get into your roots of cooking and how you, uh, I guess, what inspires you to cook the most. And I, when I was on your website, I just wanted to ask you, like, how do you blend American and Indian flavors? Because I know both are big parts of your heritage and, and in cooking. So how do you kind of draw from those? Sure. Aspects? Yeah. The, the Indian thing didn't. So my dad is from North India. He's from Delhi and mm -hmm. my mom is her, her, basically the two generations before her grew up in Wisconsin. So that's where I grew up. Okay. And so it was kind of like one half was super American. The other half was Indian, but my dad was very Americanized 
and my my Indian grandmother who passed away when I was 11. I have like faint memories of of her cooking, but I I never really had the like I said those those moments of you know standing on the milk crate next to her watching her you know make pakoras or whatever. So mm-hmm. um, it was never really something that that clicked in my head as far as something that I wanted to pursue. I mean, I never wanted to go to India and work at some of the nicer hotels or. I mean, even when I was in New York, there was a couple places who were like shooting for that one star Michelin level with Indian food. And it never really interested me because it didn't have the recognition. And like I said, I was only chasing the recognition when I started. I only wanted the three Michelin star places. So that was, again, a lot. There was a lot of clarity there in making sure that I could just go to these modern American and French inspired places. Mm. And when I went to Norway, that was the first time when I really got a sense of this is what it looks so some background on that restaurant the guy who opened it christopher hatuft he's half norwegian half american he spent time at alinea per se and blue hill at stone barns before he moved back to norway to open his own restaurant okay and the first menus that he was producing were literally uh knockoffs of per se style dishes um and just using norwegian ingredients because that was basically what he knew that was what he knew best that's what he thought he could bring to the tiny norwegian city that we were in Mm -hmm. and so the most refreshing part of that experience for me was really getting to see what it takes to go from um not copying somebody else's food but like being heavily inspired by other people and your past experience and then truly creating what is your own cuisine? We called it uh, neo fjordic cuisine as kind of okay. like a, a, a bash at, you know, everybody who was doing new Nordic and, and whatever. <laughs> and so I got to see what it looked like to literally chat with someone and hear, this is why we use langoustines and prepare them in this way. And this is why these scallops are so special and why we're going to serve them in the way that we serve them. Mm. Um, we're not going to sear them on one side, flip them, brown butter, a sprig of thyme and baste it because that's not us. Like that's not, that's not me. And so that was really, really interesting to see. And that really was impactful for me of like, Oh, you can take some of your personality and kind of infuse it into this, um, into the food and into this restaurant. And so when it came time for me to leave that restaurant and finally start doing food that I was going to call my own, I started to ask myself, like, what does Justin's food look like? And a lot of, a lot of it was like, those first few menus that I wrote when I got back to the U.S. were literally ripoffs of Lee's Furkit menus. They were uh, Norwegian-inspired, uh, Scandinav- very Scandinavian aesthetic, um, modern American technique. It was, it was basically like my background, all, all kind of Frankenstein into dishes. And so then I started to think about, well, and this is right around the time when I went to India for the first time. And I'm so glad that I waited until I had kind of some cooking experience as a chef to go to to go and and experience that because it was I had some I had context that was a really important part I could I could look at you know uh well my my auntie makes yogurt every single day at her house and this is why it's totally different than the yogurt you get here in the U.S. like out of like a tin at the grocery store and the way that the spices are made and the way that the breads are 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 made it's it was totally different and that that was also at the same time when I started to think about, well, what, how do I know how to use chickpeas or how do I know how to use coconut or chili or cilantro 
or any of these other aromatics that are really, really prevalent in Indian food. And I started to think about it and I was like, I don't know how, because the only thing that I know, like those, all those ingredients were off limits at mm-hmm. French laundry at Scandinavian restaurants. Um, we, I okay. mean, cilantro basically never made its way onto the menu outside of Asian themed staff meals. You know what I mean? Okay. And yeah. so to have like, basically all this technique and all of this experience coupled with this whole entire new palette of ingredients that was something that was really motivated. Cause then, then the menu started to flow. Then the food started to kind of like really uh, write itself. And it's not to say that I'm even close to having um, developed my own style yet, but it certainly makes it feel more like mine than the menus that I wrote, you know, 18 months ago. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so I guess when you're making menus now or making dishes, what do you kind of look for like in terms of inspiration? Sure. Um, a lot of the food that I'm doing now, um, it depends on if it's a, a, a you know, quote unquote, Justin Kana themed menu or if it's something for a client. If it's something I, I am in the firm camp that I don't have to push Indian kind of fusion food on everyone because I know that sometimes that's not something that a lot of people are going for. And especially with, with my background uh, and maybe a couple of other people can relate to this who have worked at Michelin places. Sometimes you, you tell someone that you've worked, you know, at Blue Hill at Stone Barns or Cortone or wherever you say, and then people assume that that's kind of like the food that you're going to be making. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily good or bad, but, um, Like it's, it's like, I can do food like that. It's not, if that's what you want, you know, like if, if I'm going to get hired to do an event or a a private dinner or something, um, I totally can do stuff like that. But if it would be a dish that would be on my own, I start to think about, um, you know, what, what is it, what is in season, what is great to get, because it's part of the reason why I moved here to the Pacific Northwest, because it's arguably some of the best product available in, in the U S period other, uh, other than going to, you know, San Francisco or, uh, LA or upstate New York. Mm-hmm. It's, um, so it's amazing to work with the stuff here. And then it just becomes, you know, what is something that I would get stoked to see serves to me? And then how can I make it different where, you know, one, I, I'm a firm believer that if I'm excited to cook it, the person will probably be excited to eat it. And it's not, okay. it's not, it's not necessarily based on the fact that, um, I, I can't recall a dish in 2018 that I made. I mean, there was some techniques that I did twice, but like full out dishes, it, it's, it's constantly changing. And I feel like when you're starting off, like I am on doing my own stuff, it's it, the, the, the quantity as opposed to quality is a kind of good measure to set yourself by, because then you can take notes along the way and kind of like, reflect backwards and say, okay, I really like that. Let's refine this a little bit. Um, so like, for example, there's, um, I, it's, it's on my Instagram. If anybody wants to check it out, there's a, there's a, um, street food snack in India called a a Raj Kachori, where it's basically like a, it's like a hollowed out. Basically what it is, is it's a, it's a disc of, um, like whole wheat flour and chickpea flour and you fry it. So it puffs up. And then you, the, the way that they eat it in India is you, you pop out the top. So it's like a, it looks, picture it like a potato chip that puffs, you know, sometimes you get those potato chips in the bag that puff up. Yeah. It's like, if you, if you crack the top of it open, 
um, and then they'll fill it with, uh, you know, wasabi peas and wontons and uh, pomegranate seeds. And then they'll squeeze uh, mint chutney and yogurt and tomato sauce all over it. And it's kind of like this messy thing that you eat on the street. Um, I started to think about that and how I could um, recreate this thing that a ton of really awesome Michelin restaurants do, which is like this seasonal vegetable salad. So I would basically take, um, I did one in the fall where I basically took, you know, butternut squash and beets and kale and parsnips and uh, citrus was just coming into season and uh, basically prepare it all in different ways. Some are pickled, some are raw, um, some are grilled, and then you make like a couple different sauces. And then I made those, they're called puris, and then okay. load 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 that up. And so it's essentially... Uh, street food meets super high, high end fine dining. Um, mm-hmm. And I, that, that was a, that there, there's a question that you asked about what dish am I most proud of that, 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 that in 2018 was, a, was something that I really want to iterate on going forward okay. because it, it's, it's not easy to create, but it's something that uh, I, I just had a ton of fun making it and the people that ate it really enjoyed it too. So that, that helps. How about how far down is that on your Instagram? Just so people know, like, is it recent? Um, no, that was probably, Let's see. It was a couple. It was a couple of weeks ago. I will. I will send it to you. If okay. there's a way that if you want to post it, you're, yeah. you're welcome. You're welcome to do so. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to put it on a story or even as a post. Yep. Um, definitely. So, um, I guess what does it mean uh, for you, like being a chef? Because we're gonna get into the whole discussion of cook versus chef mentalities. Yeah. But um, before we start, I would just like to know, like, what does being a chef mean to you personally? Being a chef to me personally. I would have to say there's a, there's a, there's a personal thing that you take into it. And then there's like this outwardly way that you go about it. I think that um, there's, there's an element of all of us getting into it for hospitality focused reasons at, at like most of its core in that way. I think that depending on people's personality, it always goes in one direction or the other. But I think, I think there, there's an element of, um, taking care of people I think has to be there, but I also think that there's an element of creativity and um, like there's a reason why there's, there's so many of us misfits in there. And I don't know how to Mm -hmm. exactly quantify that. Like what, what is that X factor where there's so many people who either didn't belong to any circles growing up or didn't really fit in, in any other way, in any other career. And they somehow find their way into being a chef. Um, Yeah. But which is counterintuitive because at, at its core, it's kind of like bringing people together. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's something that I would have to think on, I, I think, to give you a more articulated answer. But the, the thing that I and maybe we can go right into that is the cook versus chef part. Yeah, let's do it. Um, I had this huge video that still has still has quite a few dislikes on it, but it, it it's for good reason, um, because I basically grew up having this mentality of calling myself a cook, even though, you know, when I would go home for the holidays or I would run into people that weren't necessarily in the industry, like at a bar in in New York and I would introduce myself and I would say where I work and they would say like, Oh, you're a chef at this place. Mm -hmm. But then at work, uh, people wanted me to, you know, say that I was uh, just a cook or, you know, uh, just a line cook or, or what have you. And so, I made this video all about the fact that um, 
and and the, 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 it, it slightly changed since I got a little bit of feedback from the video. And basically what I said, what I said initially in the video is if you prepare food and get paid to do so in like a professional environment, you are a chef. Mm-hmm. And some of the people were saying, well, you know, like people get paid to make food at McDonald's. Are they chefs? And, you know, <laughs> I guess I guess it's not necessarily wrong, but. I, I've, I've kind of amended it to say that, you know, if, if you work at a place and get paid to prepare food and other people at that place also call themselves a chef, you can also mm-hmm. say that you're a chef. Because the, the, the funniest part about the people who say, well, you're a cook until this point, they're, they're, there's no clearly defined, you know, point where it's like, if, if you go to medical school, you're a medical school student, but then when you graduate, then you become a doctor. Yeah. And it, it whether it's the current education system and, and how, you know, there's so many 18 month um, or six month or 12 month uh, culinary schools, there's it's it, 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 the, the the weight of saying that I spent time at culinary school isn't the same as saying I spent eight years in medical school and did a residency, you know? Yeah. So what I guess I guess the question then that I ask for anybody who goes the other way is at what point do you go from cook to chef and some people say that it's title based or or responsibility based but um and that's when i talk when i when i responded to your first question about you know uh that outward kind of the way that you present yourself as Mm -hmm. a chef is um that's that i think is the important part where it's like you can have all those other qualities where you you're you're interested in taking care of people and you're really technique focused and you can do that and just have people over at your house all the time. Yeah. But I feel like being a chef has has so many other connotations to it and and it's one of the reasons why I try to make the content that I do is because I feel like there's so there's so many other underlying issues whether it's it's mental health or communication with your peers or um you know, buy, buying too much gear to offset the fact that you really don't know exactly what you're doing technique wise. Um, that's mm-hmm. kind of like what I'm, what I'm interested in doing. And, and part of it is, part of it is a little, a little unknown as far as like, what does, um, I guess the question that I ask myself quite a bit is what does being a chef in 2022 look like? Yeah. Um, and I mean, you, you and I both know that we're, we're interested in fusing media into what we're doing. And I think that's a very interesting conversation. Yes, definitely. Um, for me personally, like just to give you some background, I remember being in my Votech school, like my vocational school. Sure, school, sure. And you know, my parents were super supportive of me, and they're you know they were proud that I was going to school for cooking. And they got me a chef coat, and it said Chef Ray DeLucci on it. <laughs> that's and such remember, a weird moment, right? Yeah, and I remember yes, because I remember wearing it, and like the kids in high school were like, you know, you're not a chef, and even like adults, like teachers be like you're, you're not a chef you shouldn't be wearing this coat so then when i went into college i was like all right i'm a cook i'm not gonna be a chef for a long time yeah and then um i just started you know i just started to notice things like all these like students who just like going through hard times and stuff and them calling themselves cooks and just wanted to be chefs this whole time and i think a big reason why i started line cook thoughts with that name is i took the cook name as a badge of honor to just be like okay like cool we're not chefs Per, per se but we're still you know gonna be sure. leading the industry in some sort of way you know we're young we're doing what we do best or we might be everyday workers servers anything but totally the word cook for me means like 
you know, anyone in the industry can apply to it. And that's why I went with it. But mm-hmm. I, I love your mentality of, you know, ownership of, you know, if you're a chef, you can go ahead or if you cook, you can go ahead and be called a chef because then it's like, you can't blame anybody out. Yeah. It's and, easy and to blame a chef, but absolutely. if you're a chef, you can't, you, it's you, you know, you're taking ownership of your own craft. Yep. And I think that's, that's probably the most uh, important clarifying thing is that, you know, I wasn't speaking to the person who just graduated from a six month culinary program and they wanted validation that they could call themselves a chef so that they can, you know, either, either lie their way into a new job or, you know, get, get some sort of uh, private gig working for someone with a large bank account. You know, mm-hmm. I, the, the, the real person I was talking to in that video was someone like me who was, you know, had all this experience, had all this uh, technique, had this ambition. But for some reason, I was like having all this negative talk with myself of like, you're just a cook, you're not a chef yet. And I guess that that is the, the very, the very important clarifying thing there is that, you know, what if you just started calling yourself a chef tomorrow, what would change in your mentality? And if and if the, the question is, well, I would probably take myself a little bit more seriously, then I would ask yourself, why, why, why not do that? And because then, then, and it's a thing that I say in the video too, is like, well, what kind of chef are you then? You know, are you, are you, you know, our pleasure to work with? Are you just a huge dickhead that no one likes? Um, mm-hmm. Are you professional? Um, all these questions can then, can then come into the equation. But yeah, like you said, when you, when you downplay it and just say, Oh, well, I'm just a cook. It's really easy to use that as kind of a cop out. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, definitely. Uh, do you do you follow Gary V at all? Yeah, absolutely. He was one of the biggest kind of uh, forces for me as far as like showing, like, urging me into well you should probably think about having a personal brand if you're interested in motivating people and uh spreading some positive vibes and you know having having a way to impact outside of the food that you're doing like trying to figure out how you can scale definitely yeah i mean he exact same for me i started watching him i i was in chicago and i just got done with the stage this last december and the stage didn't go my way and I didn't have a job yet, like, that I wanted, and basically I was, like, you know, just kind of down and out, and he, like, kind of just started talking about building your own brand and taking ownership and how, like, it's easy for people who work at a company to just complain because they're not the boss, but when you become the boss, you hold yourself to such a higher standard. Totally. And so, like, his whole mentality kind of reshaped what I wanted in the near future, but, um, and definitely got me into the podcasting, but, you know, I think that's what connected me most to him was his ability to take ownership, and I feel like cooks and chefs i feel like that's the perfect example yep. of what we're talking about with gary v and everything else so. totally totally and i think like part of that and i was literally thinking about it today where it's like i it's somewhere it switched for me where it was like i didn't really care anymore about you know having yep. the most number of michelin stars or making the most money but it was like if i can find a way to give back to the most chefs period as far as like in the same way that, that Gary's trying to think about giving back to the most number of entrepreneurs period. I think that, that that's a much more fulfilling and motivating kind of carrot for me to chase long-term. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, I was, there's always this thought um, in the beginning when I started cooking where I would see like my cooks, my fellow people like on the line, just struggling to put out these great experiences for people. And over time I would just be like, 
you know, I wish these guys could have a meal. I wish yep, yep. people like my chef who is working so hard could just sit down and have one of these meals that he's cooking. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. when I, that's kind of why I wanted to start this is just, you know, everyone's, all the guests are getting all the attention and then the big name chefs are getting attention. And I just, I want the cooks to be yep. able to be related to and promoted. So I 100%. definitely get that sense of giving back. Like I know I'm young, I'm only 21. Yeah. You know, I still have a lot to experience in the industry, but I figured why wait? Like I can just start now and my experiences will grow and hopefully we'll all grow together in this podcast and Instagram page. But I <laughs> exactly. really just want to give back while I have the time. So And it's very admirable and I, I really thank you for what you're doing. It's 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 awesome. Yeah, thank you. I mean it same with you. I mean, I was watching one of your videos, um, the Dow Strong Knives. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I just think videos like that are cool in itself because you kind of cut through the bs and i mean you're so knowledgeable on you know like the knife wasn't weighted it's not balanced a certain way and there's things that i wouldn't necessarily think about you know so totally and that's another thing that maybe um goes a little bit understated because it's really easy to talk about this uh you know uh very raw raw motivational uh kind of tactic or strategy or mindset shifting stuff and i i know that there's a place for it and that's the stuff that truly impacts but you know sometimes you just want to watch a review on a knife bag when you get off of work you know what i mean because it's like and so that's what that's what that content was for me as well because there was a lot of restaurants i worked at where you know you would be walking it happened to me right before i left norway there was something where i let i left a bag or i left a tool on the counter somewhere and i wasn't i wasn't physically standing next to that counter but i was like within earshot of it and one of the apprentices walked by the table and picked up the tool and asked to one of his other's apprentices like whose tool is this uh mm-hmm. and then the other apprentice said oh it's probably justin's you know because like i have such a I, I geek out about that kind of stuff and i love i love kitchen gear and i know there's a like clearly they're my my best performing videos so it's like there's also an, enough of us out there as well so that's like i it, it, doing my best to do both where it's like I'm, I'm able to bring you some value through education and and like i said mindset shift but also like you know maybe you're interested in either just getting some entertainment or learning a little bit about a new knife um i, I want to do that as well awesome great so before we uh get into like the more media side of things i just kind of wanted to run through you already like said what restaurants you worked at, but maybe some lessons you learned in working or externing it per se or working for Grace. Uh, Grace being the restaurant I wanted to work at getting out of college. Um, yep. Obviously, they closed. Closed, yeah. But um, maybe some lessons you learned throughout the way that you could share on yeah. food and inspiration sure. through food and cooking and all that. Sure. Um, a lot of the stuff that I put out there now comes from a place of feeling like I sucked when I started at a lot of these places because, you know, you, you go in saying that, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll work hard and you'll, you'll say yes, chef, and you'll be very professional and respectable and you'll, you'll work fast and you'll work clean. And then you go into these places and you start to do a project and then someone turns over and says, your station's a mess. And you look down and you don't think it's messy, Mm -hmm. but it truly is messy. And it's like, you realize really like, it's a really humbling experience, (laughs) Where you're yeah. like you're either you're either peeling onions and there's like a few papers down on down by your by your feet or like you know you're you're juicing stuff and you have a couple of drops of carrot juice that are on the countertop like it, at per se that is a messy station and um, 
I guess I'm continuing to try to dissect kind of like where my head was at and the things that I didn't know and finally started to learn in, in working at these places. And I, I, I would do my best on all the stashes that I did and all the first few weeks that I would do at these places to kind of like draw out little diagrams of like the, the, the line cook, uh, the lead, I, there's a photo in one of my note. Uh, there's a picture I drew in one of my notebooks of like the lead line cook at La Bernadette. He stored his knife, uh, blade facing up on the top of his cutting board. And that to me was just like this mind blowing thing of like, Oh, you don't just like put your knife forever. Like it goes mm-hmm. back to the same place every single time that you're done carving a piece of beef. Mm-hmm. Like that's crazy. And it always goes back like clean and wiped and the towel goes back in the same place and it's folded. I mean, even like, like, like I said, folding towels, like that's something that, uh, if you would get, you would get like screamed at, at per se, if your towel wasn't clean and folded next to your cutting board. Um, and that's something that, you know, not a lot of people will ever experience. And it's not to say that that's a bad thing, but it's something where you truly start to see that these people are operating at a different level when you, when you start to go, like, it's why I, I, strongly recommend as many people as I can even if you don't have the ambition of opening a Michelin star place to just go spend a couple of days there because you'll start to see kind of like these other little nuances that you probably weren't even thinking about but they're they do it for a reason they don't do it to be kind of you know holier than thou or you know because they think they're better than you but there truly is benefit in doing a lot of these things um I think about um there's this guy who was an old sous chef of mine at per se. And he had this moment when I was, I was peeling the skin off of little pearl onions and I had the pearl onions and like a Lexan far across the table. And every single time I would go to pick up a new onion, I would reach across the table to pick one out. And he's Mm. like, why are you doing it like that? And I'll be like, doing what and he's like you're you're spending like three extra seconds or like two and a half extra seconds reaching across the table to grab a new onion and then he like took out a quart deli and like scooped a bunch of onions in it put it one in what like the the raw onions on like next to my left hand Mm -hmm. in the middle was the waste bin and then on the next like one two three from left to right it was like raw onions waste bin uh cleaned onions and he's like this is how you need to work because and like when you've never done it before, it seems so foreign. It seems like, why would I like, why, how would I even think of that? And then once you know it, you try to go backwards and you're like, this is a really inefficient mess. Like why, why would Mm -hmm. I even, why would I even work in this other way before? But like I said, you have to have those experiences to kind of, because it's not a natural thing for us to think about. Um, But yeah, I, I think the other thing that, that was really impactful for me the 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 things i've talked about so far are very very positive but the thing that i the the thing that i don't talk about not because i don't think it should be brought to light but because i still have yet to figure out how i want to present it is that there there, there's an insane amount of politics that happens at all these places um any of these kind of shows that you'll see of these these big uh offices uh or really cutthroat uh, kind of job environments. The same thing happens in a Michelin kitchen where, you know, people are going around um, backstabbing people or, um, you know, like messing up people's prep or, you know, you say you, like a mess gets made and you, you say that you didn't do it even though you really did it or, 
you know, the sous chef comes around, like it, it, it goes all the way up to management, right? Where like mm-hmm. the sous chef will come up and say like, Hey, if you stick around for six more months, I'll give you the butcher position. Um, and then he'll go to the person two tables away and tell them the same thing, even though there's one butcher position available, yeah. you know? So there's a lot of stuff that, that happens and it's like, well, he said, she said, uh, who's your, how's your relationship with this person will dictate how you get promoted. Uh, as opposed to kind of a meritocracy where that, you know, the best cook gets promoted. Um, and that's also something that I learned and something that, you know, I, I have as a takeaway, but it, it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just, it's, it's, it's how it is. And if you can learn to navigate that, you can become very successful and move up very fast. Yeah. Um, but it's to each their own. And so I, I would hate to, to make it all uh, puppies and roses in working at a Michelin star place because it does take an incredibly thick skin to kind of go through those kinds of experiences. So just something to keep in mind if someone's listening and they're like, I want to do that. Just, you know, make sure that you, 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 you see the full picture. So I guess that's what I have to say there. Yeah. Thank you for that. That really is going to be beneficial for a lot of people who listen mm-hmm. to this. Great. So uh, we're going to take a quick break and then when we get back, we'll just talk more about your social media outings and kind of how you started that. And yeah. Sounds great, man. All right. Thank you. Hey, Justin, welcome back. And we're back. Yep. So, um, I guess I want to start with what made you start doing the emotion podcast. I mean, we talked on it briefly on how you wanted to bring value and whatnot, but what was that switch in your mind that made you just go, okay, I want to start a podcast or I want to start making content. Sure. So a lot of it was based on, the fact that when I was a very ambitious young culinary school student, I really got a lot of value from reading the bloggers that were eating out across the world. So a life worth eating, Andy Haler, Ulterior Epicure, all these guys who were basically blogging a couple times a month um, because they were traveling through Spain. This was when the big Spanish revolution was happening and El Bui and Muguritz and Arzak were all doing their thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the Scandinavian thing was just kind of starting to take off. And it was really this really inspiring thing where I could start to see all these amazing kind of, I could travel vicariously and see all these restaurants uh, and hear these people talk about these chef swaps and relationships and, and the ingredients that they were using. And it was amazing. And towards you know, kind of when I started to move to Europe, basically towards the end of my time at the French Laundry, there th- these people start, stopped blogging. So A Life Worth Eating hasn't blogged in, you know, a, a while. Uh, Spanish hipster um, isn't traveling as much as they used to. Ulterior Epigure started to do more editorial stuff. And so I started to think, oh, and this was right around the time also that Eater brought all of their writing in-house. So Eater... Mm-hmm. Um, for those of for people that don't know, used to be kind of this place for freelance food writers to write pieces and Eater would publish it. It was amazing. Really? <laughs> and then all of a sudden Eater decided that they wanted to bring all their writing in-house. And whether that's because of Vox or who owns them or, or, or whatever, um, it became this very vanilla, almost BuzzFeed kind of content. And it was it was a moment when I was working with this guy who went from apprentice to chef de partie at the restaurant in Norway. And Bonjwing was there because he was our food photographer for a lot of our guest chef dinners. And Bonjwing was talking about Rene Redzepi. And this apprentice who had just become a chef de partie looked at me and he's like, who's Rene Redzepi? 
And I was like, oh man, like I gotta do, I gotta do something about this. So <laughs> I, 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 I saw this white space in, you know, someone that is a little bit more young and tech savvy. Um, I would have conversations with Bonjuring where he did, he didn't want to do Instagram and he didn't understand Snapchat. And I was like, well, there's gotta be somebody who can like kind of break through and get to this next generation through social media or, or whatever. And like provide them a different perspective on the news that was happening in the culinary realm. So I started to think about, you know, how this was right when I was starting to produce content as well. And I was like, well, what would be a show that would be really interesting where I could take eater articles and Grub Street pieces and and articles from the New York times and some of these restaurant reviews that I I thought were either bullshit or amazing uh, or really controversial and break them down and basically be like, this is why Danielle going from three stars to two stars matters, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is why uh, Rene Redzepi announcing that Noma was going to do seasonal menus that focused on uh, the, the ocean game and vegetables matters. Um, and kind of like break it down, not, not be a press release place, but kind of embrace the fact that I have a lot of experience. I am very opinionated on a lot of these things. But I also like doing the research. It's not like I um, just kind of jump on a live stream and and shit talk people. You know what I mean? Where it's like I try – and so I I took a lot of inspiration from um, Philip DeFranco who does like a daily news show on YouTube. Yeah, I know. Um, Yeah, so he – I took a lot of inspiration from that where he's like – he's very good at presenting the facts and then being very honest about the fact that like this is my opinion. This is what I think. Um, And I think he's very reasonable and I like to think that I'm – also semi-reasonable with a lot of things. So mm-hmm. I can then share that. And this was, again, right when I was starting the content thing. And I was like, what would I, – I don't remember if it was I, – I believe it was a Tim Ferriss thing where he was talking about, you know, make things – what would it look like if it were easy is the question you should ask yourself when you're, when you're going into a new project. And I was like, well, an easy way for me to do the Emulsion podcast would be to kind of write out a full script, do the research on the articles, set up my phone, uh, hop on Facebook Live – and then publish that video to YouTube after I was done with it. So it was like, it was no spontaneity on camera. Everything was scripted. Um, it was all recorded live. So there was no chance to edit it. And that's basically how the first, someone can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it was like, that was probably the first, you know, 40 episodes of the podcast were really potato quality video of me talking through news stories. And okay. I think it was episode 12 when I had my first guest. Um, but, you know, that was – it took some time. It was literally, I don't know, maybe like episode 60 when I finally started to find my voice and like trying to – like finally being able to – and that, that, that again is back to that point that I made and we'll probably get into it a little bit about qual- quantity being more important than quality when you're starting because you have to taste things. You have to be able to go through and see like, oh, I actually don't do well on any conversations longer than – you know, 20 minutes on camera, you know, like I just break down and I'm not interesting anymore. So maybe I should focus on micro content that I share on Facebook. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, yeah. And I, I say it a little bit in this, in this very, very, very long, uh, podcast I just published where the emulsion podcast is my, on, on all measurable levels, it is my least well performing piece of content that I produce every week. As far as like number of people that listen, uh, minutes watched, not minutes watched, but uh, it has way less downloads than a knife gear review, basically. Okay. And so anybody that would be reviewing my content should say, well, you should stop the Emulsion podcast because you're not getting as many views from it. But 
um, and I say this in the in the podcast, is the people who love it really love it. And that's one yeah. of the reasons why I'm not going to stop it. It's become one of my favorite pieces of content to produce because I get to geek out. I realize it's a very niche thing. <laughs> like, it, I, I'm not trying to produce uh, trendy or um, easily searchable content. I'm trying to figure out if you're an, if you're someone if you're basically like how I was in, in culinary school. You're ambitious and you're hungry and you like to work hard and you like to geek out about restaurants and chefs and fine dining stuff. You will probably like the Emulsion Podcast. So that's kind of yeah. what it is. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I just. I over the last couple of months or the last month, I, I feel like I've been doing this for a couple of months now, but it's only been a month and a couple of days. I uh, just like kind of exposing myself and seeing all the content out there, especially with you. Like I have a lot of videos to watch and podcasts to listen to. Yeah, <laughs> but it's so great to see. Like it's great to see that you know I could go see a video of maybe like the Doll Strong Knife Review or the Cook for Chef mentality, mm-hmm. and then like I can watch that video, but then I can also get your content through a podcast so that when I'm driving to work, totally, I have something to listen to besides me trying to get YouTube to stay on in my car and yeah, bumping into it and stuff. So yeah, I mean, I, I love all the content that you put out. So thanks my man. And the, that's also part of it too, right? Where it's like, well, I could specialize in these, you know, six to 10 minute YouTube videos, but then there's no real chance to get to know me and for me to kind of share some of these other stories that I feel can be really impactful. And there's 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 really no denying that the best place to put anything long form, unless it's an article, is in a podcast nowadays. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you can blame attention spans, you can blame too much multitasking, whatever. If you have something that's long form, it should be published as a podcast. Um, yeah. Because the more the more ears you can get on it, the better. Definitely. And before we go further, I just I ta- I told you this before, but my friend Greg recommended me to reached out to you yep uh, and he's a big fan of yours so greg Steele. uh yeah this is your shout out awesome so. yeah thanks yeah. I, I yeah i i appreciate the the share every everybody who shares anything i'm i'm always i i'm just getting started i i still feel like i'm just getting started so every little share helps and i'm glad i'm glad that i could i mean look at look at what happened you know like one yeah. one share and now we're having a conversation it's great yeah definitely um so I guess how do you how did you balance it with work? How have you been balancing it with work? Because for me, I'm in the weird transition. I'm moving to Midtown Manhattan next week. I'm starting a new job for a more manager. I'm doing like a manager in training position because I feel not. I don't feel like I'm you know super technically skilled in cooking, but I feel like I have a good foundation. I really want to know the basics of managing before I go any further. So I'm going to be getting busy, and I would just like to know how you balance all of it with work. Sure. So when I started, it was right after I became a sous chef. And so this was um, 2015. And I was coming off of so in in Scandinavia, we the the typical amount of vacation is five weeks every year, which is amazing. It's like unheard of in the US, (laughs) especially for for chefs. So what basically ha- and and because I was now in management, I was making more money than I ever had, and it wasn't even a crazy amount of money. It was just like I had no expenses because I would eat at the restaurant. I lived uh, a three minute walk from the restaurant. Uh, I wasn't buying fancy stuff because I was getting ready to move back to the U.S. And so during these, it gave basically gave me a chance to travel the world. And so it's really easy to produce content when you're doing interesting things. So I, I started really travel vlogging and that really 
got my feet wet as far as like, this is how you edit a video and this is how you do a voiceover and this is how you uh, chop up footage and do transitions and, and all this stuff. So with that foundation in place, then I started to think about, well, how can I produce a show based on what I'm doing at work? And the benefit for me was that I talked to my chef and I said, um, I basically agreed to let him have, he would be the owner of all the content um, that I produced at the restaurant, which in hindsight, if I really exploded would have been a really stupid idea, but I was just hungry enough to get the opportunity. Uh, mm-hmm. So I said, yes, I was like, yes, you, you can totally have whatever <laughs> footage you want. I don't, I don't, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And so um, he then would allow me to set up my camera. And that's basically the first couple of episodes of dish of the day. If you ever go watch those, those are like okay. all shot in the, in the restaurant in Norway. Yeah, so um, I was going to ask you what kitchen you shot those in. So. Yeah, those are all at at, at least for kit. So um, the the benefit to me doing that was that I um, because when 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 you get to the point where you're a, an executive sous chef at a place and your your boss, your manager, is shooting TV shows for six months out of the year. It, it's basically almost like your baby. Like you're, you're, you're only one degree of separation away from being an owner. So as far as like the guests coming in that night, all the front of house are asking you all these questions, all the cooks need to know when they're, where their ingredients are coming in. And so aside from going home and sleeping and maybe like a light trip to the gym, the restaurant was always on my mind. So it was actually more beneficial for me to be at the restaurant, even when I wasn't technically supposed to start work until 11 or whatever. So I would come in at nine in the morning um, and I would kind of like do a little walkthrough, see how lunch service was going, talk to the bread baker because we made all our own bread in house, uh, go through the orders a little bit. And then I would be like, okay, so that felt a little bit better than sitting at home with some anxiety of like, I wonder how the lunch service is going, you know? So mm-hmm. it's like, I was already in the restaurant already. And that was kind of like a really good unlock for me of like, being able to then shoot the content because it was like I wasn't stressing I was there in case anything went wrong um and it's not to say that because that that will burn a lot of people out and I don't really suggest it but I can only speak from my my own experience starting it off so to maybe be honest with you there was no balance at the beginning um and you just kind of maybe have to come to terms with that of like you know I'm going to commit to do 10 episodes of whatever show you decide you're going to do um and then just decide that that's going to um, live, that's going to be part of your life for the next six months. And that's okay. That's okay. You know, like you don't have to, you don't have to stress about that. Um, now I, I wish, I wish I could say I was doing that a little bit more. Um, a lot of it is more, I I would argue that the, the tail end of 2018 was not enough content creation. And I talk a little bit about that in that longer podcast where it's like, I, I, I stressed a little bit more about perfection Mm-hmm. And putting out content that was amazing. Um, I mean, you listen to the audio in the first couple episodes of Dish of the Day, and it's terrible. <laughs> but okay. I mean, that's just that, that's just how it was. You know, that's I didn't have a second shooter. It was me and my camera, and and that's all I had. And the yeah. hood was the hood was on because lunch service was on. You know, so it was it was noisy. I, I there was there wasn't much I could do. So yeah. I mean, if I had to give you any advice, I would I, I would I would ask yourself that question that I asked myself with the podcast of like, what would this look like if it was easy? Like, what would it look like to create video content or whether it's photos or, you know, if you can ask your manager, hey, can I bring a camera in and maybe I don't capture any audio, but I shoot B-roll and then I voice over it at home on my day off. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? 
Yeah. I don't know what that looks like um, for you. And, and, and that will evolve as you, as you go on. But if I had to give you any advice, it would be to maybe not expect balance right away. Maybe just expect for it to the, the scales to tip in one direction. And it's going to be like that for six months, but you know, then you'll, you'll see what the payoffs are at the end and you'll, you'll course correct as it goes. Um, but maybe one other example, and maybe this will inspire you one way or another is um, my, like when I go out to eat videos, I call them this place called episodes. Yeah, yeah, um, that was like a really big um, unlock for me where, you know, I have so many people who ask me like, do you even get to enjoy the food when you're shooting videos? And <laughs> it's it, that that's the reason that the videos are the way that they are. I mean, you notice that I don't really capture people talking at the table. Yeah. I don't really um, the, the, a lot of the footage that gets shown when I'm doing the voiceover is literally me pointing the camera at the dish while the server is explaining it. So there's no, okay. there's no lost time. Like the, I'm not letting the food get cold. Um, and so that was like a rule with me where it's like, well, I'm not going to capture any audio. So I don't have to worry about having a microphone on the top of my camera. Um, I'm not going to uh, poise the food in any way. I'm going to use the natural light that's in the restaurant. So it doesn't interfere with the, with the food that I'm doing. So it's like, I put these constraints in place, I guess is my, my takeaway for you is like, don't get stressed out to like make it this overly crazy uh, over the top production. Okay. If you know in your heart of hearts that you're not going to be able to produce that consistently because for you, consistency and quantity matters a little bit more than quality right now. So, okay. That, yeah. I mean, for me, like I start obviously with anchor Mm -hmm. Um, in my first episode, I had a, it was only like 13 minutes long, but I had to put uh, music in the background because, you know, Anchor, I mean, I love the Anchor app, but recording from my phone, there's a lot of background noise. Right. So, I mean, even in that, just learning, learning and people being like, you know, we don't like music and having to explain. Yeah. Well, I mean, the only reason I put the music is that you would hear like my dog barking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So going out and get a, getting a microphone and then getting headphones just so I can like kind of hear clearer what the person listening is going to like here totally it's been great but um i do like once i get settled into my new place i want to start making some video content yep and like for me personally i don't know what that looks like i mean i'd love to record myself having the phone call with like someone like you or yep if i'm in person with someone like having like an interview so they can listen to the audio and the video of it yep um and i also got recommended by um someone her name is taylor and basically she was like it'd be really cool if you could go behind and do like segments where you go into a restaurant and talk to the line cooks and get their perspective on things. Um, which I would love to do like that type of, like that type of content. So hundred percent. Yeah. It's totally missing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a friend of mine, Matt, Matt Broussard. He's a cook named Matt on Instagram. He tried really hard, uh, last year to vlog as a line cook. And a lot of the content he made was really beautiful, but it's really hard. And I think like, the more I think about it, that there's a reason that there's no uh, big name vlogging line cook yet. <laughs> like it's yeah. very, it's very difficult to do. So, so don't beat yourself up if you know whatever you have in your head isn't what manifests. Because, I mean, part of it is going to be like the the work itself is going to dictate what direction you go in, and then the mm-hmm. other thing is like the audience is going to dictate what direction you you go in. So, just keep an open mind, and and you'll you'll find balance eventually. But don't 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 seek it right away. Okay. And yeah, I mean, what you said about the audience just now is very important. I started the page, and I, it was made, 
it was mainly just going to be me giving out a thought two times a day. Like, yep. I was, I was just wanted to relate to cooks. And then someone sent me a thought, literally my first, it was the, like within 24 hours of starting the page, we're like, Hey, maybe you can share this. Wow. And I was like, okay, what if I just asked line cooks their thoughts? Yep. Yeah. And so that's where it kind of all came from. Totally. So, yeah. You know, and audience. Only because you were open to that. Like you could have had the ego to say, no, this is my page. This is, these are my thoughts. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like you can pay to, to have a feature on my Instagram, but you know, like because you weren't chasing short-term economics because you were doing it for the audience, that's why it continued to evolve into what it is. So I just wanted yeah. to like articulate that for anybody that's listening to kind of like, that's the real takeaway of that, that statement. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, I am, I am putting money in and like, I, you know, obviously it is a side hustle of mine, but more importantly, I do want to have a last impact on people. So totally, yeah, totally. It's, it's win-win for me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, I guess, go about picking your content because there's so much food news out there and I've seen clips of your podcast where you go over like the articles on maybe eater or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've seen your live streams on Instagram where maybe you're reading an article, but how do you pick what is read? Because there's so much out there. You could probably do a 24 hour podcast. Yeah, totally. So. And so part of it is, was actually very liberating for me to decide that, you know, the, the, the news shows are going to be every other week. So basically what happens is, you know, I'm just like anybody else that's listening. I scroll through Twitter, I scroll through Instagram, I scroll through Facebook and I see these articles where it's like, Hmm, I would probably want to read that. And, or like that, that, that is something that's interesting to me. Or I think that someone listening to the show would probably get value from, from this story. Basically thinking back to culinary school, Justin would culinary school, Justin read this. Mm-hmm. And if the answer is yes, then what I do is I, I do the little share button on my iPhone and I save it to a note, like an Apple notes. Like that's as simple as it is. And okay. so then by the time I go to write the show, I basically have a list of, you know, five to 10 articles that I think are interesting. And then of those five to 10, I actually read through them, do some little background research on them. And then I decide like, these are going to be like the seven or eight articles that I talk about in the show. Okay. Um, that basically is, is my, my litmus test. And it's kind of like worked for me so far because again, like it's a lot of it is my perspective. I don't want to cover, um, you know, six cookbooks you should buy this holiday season. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like any of those very, um, clickable, uh, Buzzfeed style articles where it's like, um, here's why whipped cream is not trendy anymore. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't like culinary school, Justin would never read that article. So the, the, the way that it flips though, sometimes, and the reason that I do talk about some of these trendy pieces is because like, I do think that you should be thinking about, um, automated work. I do think you should be thinking about lab grown meat. I do think that you should be thinking about um, restaurants that only have 45 seats, but they serve 400 meals a day. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like those are things that, that truly can make an impact in someone's career if they hear about it through the podcast. So that's kind of more or less how the emulsion podcast stories get picked. Um, it's not a very scientific thing. Um, and there's also people that send me stories, which I'm super grateful for. Cause it's like, if you want to hear me break down one of these articles, I'm happy to do it. And then as long as there's an audience of one, again, that's part of the, the podcast I wish I had in culinary school. Like if, if there's an audience of one, there's probably more people just like you. Um, okay. So that's part of it. And then 
I also keep a list in an app called Trello where I come up with video ideas, whether that's through, you know, some like people have DM'd me on Instagram asking me the same sort of question, you know, 10 times. Then it goes into that list of like, like I'm working on a video right now about um, is culinary school worth it, which is like so many people ask me that. Um, I have yeah. a video, another video I'm working on right now. It's called how to talk about food because people ask me like, how do I present a menu? How do I create new dishes? How do I know mm -hmm. what goes with what? Um, and so those make it into a list. And then I decide basically at the start of my week, uh, more often at the start of the month, like what are, what are the videos that I'm going to make this month? Um, and then I pick from that list, um, basically what's, what gets made and what doesn't get made. There was a really interesting point I was listening to on a, on a podcast today, actually, of someone who talked about how they, 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 they wanted to start asking their audience what videos they wanted to make. Okay. And they gave, they, 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 the point of the story was basically that that's very bad advice because it's like you as the creator have to be excited about the content first. Right. Mm -hmm. And then by you being excited about the content, then the audience will then be excited. And it's not to say that you should be a hundred percent selfish with what you're doing, but there's a chance that if they, they like what you've done in the past, they will then continue to like what you create going forward. And I feel mm. like a lot of people get caught up with, uh, you know, you're catering to the audience. You should listen to what the audience has to say, but that can't come at the expense of you hating the videos that you're making, you know, because the reality is people, what, what is that quote? Is that uh, you can't like, people don't know exactly what they want. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, that Henry Ford quote of if I, I know asked people what they wanted, they would say a faster horse kind of thing. Yeah, I know what you're getting at. So um, just, I don't know, if, if, if that makes its way into your head where you're like, well, I want to be completely audience centric going forward, just mm. be careful and make sure that you're, you're doing stuff that, that you're excited about because that's going to drive a lot of the, the, the energy that comes through in your content. So, yeah, I mean, I, there was an Instagram story where I put, you know, I did the question thing. I was like, you know, what, what do you want me to touch on? Yep. And there are some content that I was really excited about. And then there's some content that I'm, you know, I'm not going to say what it is, but I probably won't touch. Just sure. Sure. I, A, not qualified to, or B, I'm not interested in. And the beauty of that is someone else will come along that is, and they will do yeah. it. And it's going to be great content. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, a big thing for me is a lot of, you know, because it's such a big thing in the industry, a lot of cooks are, you know, they want me to talk about mental health. For me, that's a big, very big responsibility. So, I, like, the best way I'm going to start talking about it is, like, the little things, like, how to not get burned out. Yep. Or maybe some anxieties I have in the kitchen. And hopefully they can relate through that. But I don't think in the near future I'm ever going to do like, a full podcast where I'm just telling people, like, what they should look out for in the kitchen mental health-wise because that's not me. But I can relate, I can give them stories and examples and kind of relate to them through that. So, well, on the flip side, then you can also take that as like, oh, my audience is really interested in mental health. So maybe mm -hmm. that can then guide your podcast guests. So then yeah. maybe there's someone else who published a really successful podcast on mental health in the kitchen. I'm thinking about Kat Kinsman right off the bat. She's a really good, she has a really great Facebook group on Kat hospitality Kinsman. professionals. It's K-A-T-K-I-N-S-M-A-N. Um, okay. So, I mean, then, then you could literally, that, that's a great piece of content as, in, as you going to her and saying, listen, my audience really wants to hear about mental health. I know you're the foremost authority on mental health in the hospitality industry. 
let mm-hmm. me learn from you. Like, let me ask you some questions. Cause truly I have no, I don't feel qualified to do this. So yeah. let me ask you some questions and that that's going to make a great interview. Cause you're going to be genuinely curious, you know? Okay. So awesome. yeah. Thank you. Um, of course. So we kind of touched on, cause I was going to ask you next, where do you draw like your, like what experiences do you draw from? And you said the like you being in culinary school is what you like kind of relate to. Mm-hmm. So I guess, what are your plans for content in 2019? And what is your plans with kitchen work in 2019? Yeah. Um, this is part of that larger piece of content that I produced um, okay. where I basically say um, the emulsion podcast is still going to be top of mind. Um, I'm, I actually did my first experiment with outsourcing the edit for the emulsion podcast for episode 87 the episode that came out this week so that was great okay um so like making myself less of a bottleneck is a big priority for 2019 because it's like if i'm scripting all the videos if i'm the cameraman if i'm the person on camera and i'm also the editor and the poster you know the publisher of the video what of those do i not technically have to do so that i can produce more because like i said um I still feel like I'm starting off. I still feel like uh, quantity is still a big part of the equation for me right now. Mm-hmm. And so um, as that kind of that list on Trello that I talked about grows, I want to be able to, to, to produce these videos um, okay. now that I've started to kind of develop my own voice. And I know that, you know, if I produce two to three videos a week, that's actually realistic um, now and they can still be high quality videos. So um more, more, more advice, more gear videos. Um, I promised dish of the day would come back in 2018 and it did not. And that's okay. because of like crippling. What did I call it? I called it, um, selfish and self afflicted perfectionism. Basically. Like I was basically telling myself that it wasn't good enough and that I shouldn't publish it. Um, that's going to change this year. Dish of the day is going to come back. So, um, part of it is I would also like to do a couple of, um, videos that are kind of like behind the scenes of a pop-up or an event basically hire someone to follow me around with a camera at an event in the same way that gary does his daily v kind yeah, of things that'd be cool like take me for take like do like a seven hour follow around kind of thing that gets edited into a 25 minute mini documentary kind of thing of like this is what it looks like to do an event uh with justin kind of thing um i think that would do really well um yeah, I literally, before we got on the show, I uh, went to a little garden store, got a bunch of seeds and some little things that I'm going to plant in my house because we have a garden at our, our place now. Okay. And so um, looking forward to planting that and then using those ingredients and in, like dish of the day kind of stuff, um, videos like that, I'm very, very excited for. Mm-hmm. Um, basically just continuing what I'm doing, I basically have enough pillar pieces of content that I know... I can produce in my own way that truly feel like my own voice. So between the emulsion podcast, the talking head videos, um, the gear videos, dish of the day, this place called kind of food vlogs. Um, and then kind of like the one-off weird videos. I feel like I have enough, uh, kind of pillar pieces of content that I can pull from. Okay. And then, yeah, just continue to produce that. And then, uh, another thing that, 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 that I'm trying to keep in mind and I don't exactly know what it's going to look like yet, but I want to do more collaborations in, in 2019 and, and being on your show is, is part of that, you know? Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely something I would love to do in the future is, you know, either be on your show or contribute to some way totally. to like your, your, you know, media outlets. Um, but yeah, I think collaboration is big, especially when we're, when we all have different views and we all bring value, I think that 
it can be very beneficial. And that's kind of why I've been doing so many interviews the last couple of weeks. So absolutely. And it's a really, that, that like that part of, and maybe this goes back to the early days of the, the podcast when I, it's really hard when you're starting off to come up with, you know, what you think are original ideas. Cause it's mm-hmm. back to that thing I talked about at the beginning of our interview about, you know, when you come off of cooking someone's food from a restaurant, the only thing you can seem to create from that restaurant is this or for, for your own menus is that same food. So the best part about me doing the podcast with the new stuff is that, is that I was covering other people's content. You know? okay. And so it's like for you, when you interview me or, ej or whoever um you're able to kind of like produce content where you don't feel like you are the you're spinning on a hamster wheel right you're constantly getting these new ideas um Mm -hmm. so yeah just something to think about awesome uh so real quick uh what because i saw your website the coaching sessions i'm not sure how often you do those but what can someone expect from that totally so um i had a something that happened when i had a we work office here in seattle a couple it was last year for a brief time and they were doing a special where there was this guy from the UK who was offering coaching sessions to freelancers specifically like freelancers, solopreneurs getting a gist of like, this is how to set your goals and, and achieve what you want to achieve. And I was still kind of like a little bit lost. I didn't know exactly what I was doing. I wanted to make a little bit more money. And so I agreed and I, I got, I hopped on this coaching call with this guy and it's not to say that I had a bad coaching call. He was a great coach. Um, mm-hmm. But it got me thinking about, you know, hmm, what if I could offer this to people as far as like, there's this weird thing that happens after culinary school and before you own your own restaurant where it's kind of like you learn on the job, you learn from talking to people and saying like, how did this happen? How did that happen? There's no like, there's no straight path. And because culinary school is so short and because restaurant ownership is such a behemoth of an undertaking, I started to think about, you know, what value can I provide to people who want to go through the same stuff that I went through? You know, basically sending, mm-hmm. sending that first email to a restaurant, getting a stage um, when you're, when you, when you finally get into that interview and they tell you that they want to pay you this amount of money, how can you negotiate for more? Um, mm-hmm. How can you um, basically offer up a new position that doesn't even exist at the restaurant yet? Um, what is it like to move across the world and work in a different restaurant? What does it look like when you start working at a restaurant and someone has been there for six months longer than you and you eventually like end up passing them in the brigade and then they start to spite you. Like, what do you do? Um, all these questions and there's no, there's no answers. There's no, it's not to say that I'm the end all be all of answers, but it's like, I've gone through a lot of this stuff before. And so basically if, if, if you start doing coaching with me and there's the, um, the 10 people on Patreon that do it every single month, uh, mm. And then there's also the one-off people who just, you know, they're, they're transitioning or they're going through a tough time or, or they just want some advice on a specific topic. They can book a one-off session. Yeah. Um, I basically open a document and I do my best to make sure that I'm truly being like a coach and a mentor. I'm not telling you to follow exactly what my path is. I'm actually asking you these questions where maybe you've never even answered them before or thought about them before as far as like, what are your ambitions? And then I ask the the deeper questions of like, why do you want that? Um, mm-hmm. What are, what is going to be the path to get there? Um, 
And then what are some like measurables that we can track month after month to make sure that you eventually get to that point. Um, and it's, it, it, it's, it's like, it's making sure that I can be empathetic enough to set you up for your own ambitions instead of, um, you know, taking you to along the same ride that I went down. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully before um, you make that move across the country or before you go into that stage, if you're, you know, at all curious about getting some advice from someone who's been through it before. Um, I mean, I get enough DMS on Instagram and Twitter and whatever that and emails of people asking me for advice. And it's also kind of a way to make sure that I'm like valuing my time because yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, I get enough, I get enough outreach and I'm, I'm super grateful for it. And a lot of it gets answered if I have the time, but you know, if you really want to go deep and chat through your career and your ambitions and where you want to go, um, that's, that's the best resource to, to get that. And I really yeah, feel like I can help. And there's nothing wrong with realizing that's what, that's what I'm trying to get into a lot of folks heads too, is like, if you have something that's of value, you should be charging some, something for it. Because totally. You're worth your time is money. You know what I mean? Like you, you are, it's okay to want more money than yep. we think. Yep. And so, yeah, yep. that's awesome. Um, so what is your advice to young cooks and maybe young cooks like us who want to get into the social media game? I guess. Sure. Sure. Um, there's a great gentleman that I, I, I call myself as his mentor because I'm trying to help him as much as I can. It's Spencer Venancio. He's 14. He's doing pop-ups in Minneapolis. Yeah. I thought, yeah, I just actually just followed him on Instagram. Yeah. He's a really good guy. I just had dinner with him. Um, last month a couple weeks back and he i i'm always on his case for documenting more Mm -hmm. because the thing that i tell him and the reason i tell him to do that is um i wish i had content from my first few days at per se like i wish i had a three minute video of what i was thinking about before i went in for my stage at alinea like Mm -hmm. i wish i wish i had a photo of me uh, frying and peeling chestnuts at 545 in the morning at per se, you know, like, <laughs> I wish I had all this content. But the, the truth of the matter is, I didn't feel like, I mean, I had no idea I would have a YouTube channel. I that wasn't even part of the equation in my head. You know, like I said, I was going to be the next three Michelin star chef. And so I didn't know. But what I think that you and I believe in and what I what it's going to play out, we're going to see how it plays out. But I don't think that there is a place in the future where content and your ideas on the internet doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So you are better off as a young professional documenting that, that journey. uh, Gary talks about, you know, how much would people pay to see video, uh, a 17 hour long video of Jeff Bezos packing books at Amazon in early two thousands, you know, like that would, that video would have billions of views, you know? Yeah. And so if, if I had to give any advice to, to someone that's young and wants, you know, has any sort of ambition, it would be, you know, publish it and upload it to Google Photos because it's absolutely free to, to save that kind of stuff. And it's like literally before you do anything where you're nervous, set the camera up and just talk to it. Just say like, this is what I'm thinking because I have another tweet that I, I tweeted out where I was like, we're eventually going to get to a point where documentaries aren't even going to need to be shot. You're literally going to be able to just gather a bunch of footage from the internet and Mm -hmm. do a voiceover for it. And that's going to be a documentary. And so people are like, you should be recording this stuff because 
you know, how cool is it to open your restaurant someday and basically be like, this has been a 13 year journey. This is what day one looked like. You know, this is what year three, day 67 looked like, you know? Um, and so that, that, that would be my first piece of advice is just to document as much as you can. Um, another thing that, that, um, I'm trying to do more of because now in my, in the way that my life is currently, I'm personally striving for a little bit more balance. I'm striving for a little bit more time with family. I'm trying to take care of my health a little bit more than I used to. And that's hard for me to say because a lot of, because I try to, I try to practice what I preach. Right. So the thing that I need to be cognizant of and the thing that I finally wrap my head around is that early on in my career, I was willing to work my face off and it's not that I'm not willing to work my face off anymore. It's just like I was telling you earlier when you asked about balance, balance isn't always there. Yeah. And so I think that's something that as much as you might hear me say that I go to the gym six days a week and I meditate and I try to get enough sleep and spend time with my girlfriend, you might have to give that up, right? Like there, mm-hmm. there, there, there might have to be sacrifices in the beginning. Um, if you kind of want to like move ahead really fast, you know, like if you, if you have it in your head that going from zero to sous chef is going to take you 11 years, then perfect like then then you might be able to have balance in your life but i had it in my head when i was at per se and i was 18 years old that i wanted to be a sous chef by 23 so it was like well this is like you got to go somewhere because you're a lowly intern right now and you want to be a sous chef at 23 years old like you gotta you gotta pedal to the metal buddy you know so (laughs) i you know so then things changed for me because that that was my ambition you know so um I'm, I'm trying to actively be a little bit more cognizant of like trying to not give the advice that I'm heeding for myself right now, because I'm at a different stage in my life right now. So trying to be a little bit better about, you know, giving that tough love to young cooks right now of being like, you know, you got to kind of make some sacrifices. You got to put yourself out there. You got to kind of, um, be willing to be humble and, and, you know, all this stuff that's very cliche. Um, but also kind of like trying to stay away from, um, just, just giving that advice. Cause there's, there's more to it than that. And that's, that's why I try to get into some of those nuances in my videos of like, well, yes, work hard and be humble, but also like do that thing that I told you about with the delis of like keeping them in line and working efficiently. Um, mm-hmm. so trying to, trying to balance, like giving this macro mindset advice, but also like really tactical advice that I feel like is sometimes missing in the fine dining end of the spectrum. Okay. Awesome. And, uh, what is your 10 year goal then? 10 year goal. I would love in 10 years to have a space where I produce content um, and also host dinners. It's not a restaurant. It's not a media studio. It's somewhere in between. Right. So it's not necessarily I'm open on Wednesday nights because I need to serve dinner to pay my staff. It's well, we host dinners. You can call them pop ups, whatever you call them on the nights that people actually go out to eat. So Fridays and Saturdays. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the rest of the week we're producing content. We're doing um, branded sponsored content where it's like, well, um, Samsung in 10 years comes out with this crazy smart piece of kitchen technology and they want a place to shoot it. Well, we have a studio where we can help you with that. Um, And I've built out some sort of team that, you know, is production slash, creative chef slash like creative chefs with personalities 
and you know maybe we have a wine show where we travel around the world and go through different wines um i would also like to have had some sort of um professional investment in other food businesses because i don't necessarily feel like i have to be the person um in the trenches in a lot of these businesses i feel like i can provide a lot of value through giving people clarity on what their ideas are and how I can help other people um, really hash through whatever their business ideas are. And again, 10 years down the line, I will have probably built some sort of business of my own so that I have some sort of credibility in this sector. Um, And then also um, again, continuing to like, I still want to be super healthy. I, I had a lot of chefs that I grew up with who, became a chef de cuisine and the, 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 the reason that they be, they, they love that job is because they could stand behind the pass and not move around a lot. Cause their knees sucked, you know, Yeah. where it's like, there's not a lot of um, very active older chefs. And I feel like I want to kind of break that cycle of like being yeah. able to show that I can be, I can be 45 and I can be a successful chef and I can still move around. I can still play with my kids when, you know, I don't have kids now, but uh, down the line, I want to still be able to do that. And, you know, ultimately being able to say that, you know, I've helped, I've helped a certain number of people. I don't know what people, what number that is, but um, you know, the legacy will have, have started at that 10 year mark, hopefully. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, So next, so this is going to be the final portion. And I'm just going to ask you a couple of like random questions. Uh, Just, it's just more like your personality wise. Totally. See like, you know, what you like. So, what is your favorite chain restaurant? Ooh, um, I grew up in Wisconsin and Culver's is this chain out. It, it started in Wisconsin. There's a couple in Minnesota, a couple in Illinois, and maybe one in Iowa. But it's a burger place. And they do this thing called the Butter Burger. It's like Wisconsin beef, Wisconsin cheese. Um, I get one every single time I go back. <laughs> and it's what I grew up on. So it's like it's kind of like one of my favorites. If I had to pick one other one, probably Shake Shack or In and Out. I'm, okay. I'm like a huge burger burger fanatic, so awesome. any, anything that's a burger is 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 good with me. Awesome. Uh, what is your uh, most important kitchen tool? Most important kitchen tool is a. You know that's hard. I would probably have to say um, my Ninox slicer is like my favorite. It's always going to be my favorite. It was like, it was my gift for graduating culinary school. It's like this thing that's traveled the world with me. I can do next to everything with it as far as like knife projects goes. Like I butchered hundreds of kilos of fish with that knife. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, it, 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 there was a lot of stuff that went through my, my, my career where that knife was like right there the whole time. Um, so I, yeah, I would probably pick that. Awesome. What is your, uh, I guess, what is your biggest pet peeve? Like when you're working with someone on a station? Sure. Um, it's probably either um, too much shooting the shit. Sometimes I, a lot of people for, for all my, you know, positivity and outgoing nature that you see on, on, on the internet, I'm very, very quiet when I'm in the kitchen. Uh, I don't really like music playing cause I like to like hear the sounds that the kitchen's making. Like, I like to be able to know that whatever I have in the pot behind me is probably starting to get a little bit more color than I want. Um, and so 
people that people that chat a little bit too much kind of ekes me out a little bit because like i know there's a time and place for it and it's like if we're having some sort of staff meal or like before or after we start work then there's a time and place for chatting but a little bit too much conversation can sometimes eat me out a little bit and then um i think something that my last chef instilled in me is he would always right before service he would make us clean the floor so we would clean before a staff meal we would come back and set up and then he would make us clean the floor again because he wanted to um he wanted to be able to walk around when the restaurant opened uh without his clogs on he wanted okay. to walk around with his with just his socks on the floor, <laughs> and so that's always something that really stuck with me. So I try to I try to be a little bit anal about the way that the, the state of the floor cleanliness. So, yeah, if 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 you're if you're the kind of person who likes to work with a dirty floor, we we might not get along uh, <laughs> at least right off the bat. So great. Um, do you have any rituals before you start podcasting? Like, is there any? Do I have any rituals? Um. Something Not, you do to get in the zone. Sure. Um, I wish I wish I had one. I don't. I don't really. I think because I script out the videos and I'm more or less reading off of basically a teleprompter, which is my laptop. Um, that helps a lot so that I don't have any sort of like initial jitters that go through my head. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing that I do that is maybe an inside joke. Maybe people don't really care about it, but I always talk about the beverage that I'm drinking. in the podcast and it's always like today's beverage is blank and that's always something that like i always make sure that i have something to drink while i'm recording the podcast because it's like i mean you know you you talk for about almost an hour you kind of want to wet your whistle i guess and so it's always changing sometimes it's coffee sometimes it's tea sometimes it's Lacroix or some weird soda that i made with fruit that i got from the farmer's market in the summertime like i don't know it's just like a weird inside thing that people who have been listening to the podcast forever probably know what I'm talking about. Awesome. Um, what, so for me, like today I was at the movies and I go on my Instagram before I start watching the movie and there's someone who just put on their story, you know, listening to my podcast in their car and I reshared it today on my story. Yeah. Um, I, I just thought it was really cool. So what is like the coolest moment for you like that so far? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, so the a weird a weird thing that happened was um Jamie Oliver's uh content team came to the restaurant in Norway mm-hmm. and uh they produced a video on the restaurant that I worked at. It's really, really amazing. But I'm in it a couple times and a couple people that were following me back when I had maybe like 150 YouTube subscribers saw the video and commented, oh, that's Justin, oh, that's Justin, and then I commented on the video, and then Jamie Oliver's YouTube channel subscribed to my YouTube channel. (laughs) So, like, you sort through my YouTube subscribers, and it's, like, a couple people with a couple hundred subscribers, and then all the way at the top is Jamie Oliver's YouTube channel. So that was kind (laughs) of cool. Um, I mean, other than that, it's, like, the the stuff that happens when anybody says that they have had a positive impact from – the show whether it's like i love listening to you on my way to work uh you really give me a break from you know whatever i'm going through right now or this story that you covered has been really really inspiring for me or it really opened my eyes to xyz um this this that that guy who i have a whole series on the on the youtube channel where this guy from princeton he's a professor at princeton he listened to the show and he reached out and asked to interview me uh, because he likes my content like it, it, it's just cool like it, it's just stuff that I never would have seen happen had I not had you know whether it's courage or 
naivete to put myself out there and produce some content. Um, like it's always really, really super humbling. And so, um, yeah, any, any time that anybody says, you know, I'm, I'm a fan or you've, you've, you've helped me out that that's what makes it all worth it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've started to notice that, you know, obviously my audience is small. Um, but a lot of the people that are listening to the podcast and commenting on my page are fans of yours. And I've gotten over 10, at least over 10 people saying, Hey, when you have to interview Justin Connor, you have to get a quote from him. Yeah. So, I mean, your reach is, you know, probably a lot farther than, you know, so. Yeah. And that's always been crazy too, is to like, I did a, what did I do? There was a party here in Seattle where there was, um, it was a, it was a fundraiser for the Seattle zoo. And it's, you know, they raised basically, they, they, they raised $2 million in four hours through this fundraiser. It's like an insane party. Wow. And my friend asked me to be a photographer for the event because he, he needed a second shooter for himself. And, you know, I'm fairly capable with a camera. So I told him yes. And then, so I show up to this grandiose party and we're in this giant tent in the middle of the zoo. And I look around and I asked someone, what's the number of attendants at this party? And he goes, a thousand people. Hmm. And I could look around and I couldn't see the face of the person on the far end of the tent. Like it was so far that I couldn't see the last person. And so when you finally start, you finally actually see what a thousand people looks like in in real life. You're like, wow, this is crazy. And then you start to think about like, because it's really easy to get caught up in the numbers sometimes of like, well, I didn't see that much growth this month or, you know, not enough people watch this video. But then you you actually break it down and you try to visualize what a couple hundred or a couple thousand people look like. And you're like, wow, that's insane. Like, I basically yeah. just got up on stage and shared this idea with this many people. And yeah, it's like, I don't know. I continue to remind myself of that that story because, like I said, I mean, even like you just said, like you 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 have a quote unquote small audience, but it's like that that's not the point you know mm-hmm. like it, it's an impact that you can make awesome uh and then my last question before we end is uh yeah, I, i've been it's kind of becoming a tradition um to ask the guests this what does it mean for you to be a part of the line cook nation it keeps me grounded it keeps me knowing that there's people out there that were right where i was and that i'm taking this kind of time in my career to give back to that nation to that group of people who you know probably think the same way that I do and like the same things that I like I mean I know we're not all exactly the same but um yeah I have a certain amount of empathy towards exactly what a lot of these people are going through and so as as you as you've said already uh there's there's a time and place to help these people and yeah we're going to do our best to continue to to do to do just that okay thank you so much Justin um and thank you so much for coming on. I mean, you know, just starting out, it's really special to have people like you and EJ and Jessica who are just interviewed. And even my friends, Adam and Olivia, who are opening a restaurant. Just it's great that you all believe in me and support this goal of mine. So thank you. Totally, my man. I mean, it's 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 my whole my whole thesis. And I, I, I know there's going to be more and more of us that are coming out of the woodwork and getting interested in what what we're doing. And if, if this helps you in any way to get bigger and better guests on your show like i'm, I'm totally honored and i'm, I'm going to continue to follow and um i wish you the best of luck with with everything especially your new move coming up that's uh i know how that feels yes thank <laughs> you yeah i'll keep i'll keep everyone updated of course so all right thank you so much justin thanks ray <laughs>